Today, we are going to talk a little bit about principles, actually, for the next couple of weeks, because hear me when I say this, principles lead vision. When, when people, they, when they come into a new body or a new organization or a new church, well, what's the vision? I'm interested in the vision, but I'm actually more interested in the principles behind the vision. Without conviction or principles about something, vision is really not much more than marketing. And I'm not against marketing, but I'm not interested in marketing that doesn't have substance behind it. I'm not interested in promoting vision that doesn't have a reason why. So we rely on principles to shape vision and then vision to shape activity. Down the road, we'll look at what we're doing. People will say, why do you do that? Well, we do that because of the vision. Where'd you get the vision? We got them from these principles. Thinking about these things and thinking about vision, my mind, I will confess, wandered a little bit this week as I thought about how people present vision. And uh, I'm feeling my age here because I'm going to reference something that many of you are not going to remember. Uh, will it stop me? No, it will not. But uh, I'm, some of you will remember this, some or not. How many of you remember when the thing to do was going to a shopping mall. You go inside to a mall, okay? Go in, <laughs> we just split the room right there. Like, there's, I didn't know malls are not a thing anymore, but they were. And what were some, every shopping mall you go into, what were the, there was a couple of stores in every mall. Shout out, say them loud, because anybody watching online, have you ever seen the online? It looks like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> there really are people here. Okay, give, shout out, what are some of the stores, any mall you went in, you could find one? JC Penney's what? Macy's, Dillard's, I think smaller, Spencer's, a strange offering from the tech department over here. Okay, Spencer's, Radio Shack, Foot Locker, everywhere there was a Foot Locker. Remember Orange Julius? Big Orange Julius fans, wow. Okay, and in almost every mall, there was this story, or story, there was this store that would sell motivational posters and mugs. Remember these? Do you remember the name of the store? This is the corniest thing ever. Successories. For real. You go to the successories store, you'd buy a motivational poster, which essentially was a picture and a quote that had nothing to do with the picture, and, uh, but it was some motivational quote, and you would hang. And the thing is, successories at one time was a big business. They had 92 stores in 17 states and 11 nations. They were a big deal. Now, they've almost completely gone by the wayside because once you've bought one of those posters and hung it on your wall, you don't need another one, Right? Yet some of you, you go to your dentist, your accountant, whatever, they still are hanging on the wall. Now, anytime something is a success, a counter movement will rise up to make fun of it. And the more successful something is, the easier it is to make fun of. So in addition to successories, someone, this was early on in the days of the internet, opened up a place called despair.com. Demotivational posters. Posters that just tell you to chill out. And I actually like them better than the successory stuff, okay? Couple of, a couple of, um, and this is the irony. In 2023, despair.com seems quite active. Successories has faded to the wayside. Despair is easier to sell than it is success. Here are a couple of the offerings from despair.com. This is, I like this one. Get to work. You aren't paid to believe in the power of your dreams. Generally, younger people don't like that. Older people go, yeah, that's actually true. Here, I actually, I would like this one. This will take, gives me some solace. 
Mistakes. It could be the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. But maybe my favorite, and maybe this is because I've served on some teams like this before. Teams. Together, we can do the work of one. <laughs> Have you ever served on a team that you're like, I'd be better off on my own? I, I worked with a team one time where I said, just flippantly offhand, guys, don't call me to a meeting that should have been an email, and don't send me an email that should have been a text. I later found out they held a meeting about that subject to decide if they should text me or just come and talk to me. Teams. Together, we can do the power of one. As 2022 closed out, we did a short series on the idea of what we called picture this. Talking about the future and the belief that if we don't have a picture of the future, of what it's going to be like, someone will hand us a picture of the future. Some of you are still carrying around pictures of the future that were handed to you by overzealous parents or by employees. And they gave you this idea. You're like, I don't know if I want to hang that picture on the wall. That may not be the dream of my heart. It's so important that the picture that we gaze on comes from the Lord. And as we move into the new year, we're rolling into this new series on core principles. Everybody's like, show me the vision. Let's talk principles. And the timing is vital for us to hear from the Lord in regarding how these things flesh out. What I want is a picture from the Lord of our future. So that when we get tired or we get beat down or we're wondering whose bright idea was this, we can all look at each other and say, no, we heard from the Lord. Psalm 25.4, David cries out. Now, he's a leader of a nation, and he prays the prayer that every leader prays at some point, whether you're leading a business, a family, a Boy Scout troop, whatever. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. He's effectively praying the prayer of leadership, which is, can I get some help down here? Can you show me what you want to do? Because I'm trying to do it on my own, and I'm flailing wildly in the shallow end of the pool. Because leadership in our own strength is neither fun nor glamorous enough to make us want to do it if we haven't heard from the Lord. I've got these pastor friends. I reference them a lot. Uh, these four guys, someday I'd love for you to meet them. Uh, I don't want you to talk to them. I just want you to meet them. No, uh, because they know everything. My friend Robert, who pastors in Gulf Breeze, Florida, and my friend John, who pastors in Chattanooga, and my friend Shane, who pastors in Michigan, and we talk three or four times a week via text or on the phone. Like, we were in very close conversation. And in the last year particularly, we walked through it together. We have dealt with... Uh, some of our spouses having surgery. We've dealt with family issues, with church issues. We've just really supported one another. And we regularly throw ideas back and forth about what are you preaching. We've joked about telling our churches that we're opening three other campuses in each of those other cities and being each other's campus and everybody just preach once a month. We're not going to do that. Mostly because each of us, all four of us, think we're the best preacher. So we're not going to do that. But I was talking with them last week about how we talked about the idea of um, of looking for vision and, and, and struggling sometimes about how does this look and how does it flesh out. And Robert, who's the wise old sage, because he's older than the rest of us by a few years, Robert asked me, Randy, what was in your heart when you started? 
Go back to the very beginning. When you started this, what was in your heart? That question really stirred me because the circumstances under which we started were just so unusual. I look back and I just remember the chaos that went into that and then the pandemic and how crazy all that was and, you know, meeting on Zoom. We would log on on Zoom on a Sunday morning for a church. You think it's hard to listen to me in this setting. Imagine me sitting at a desk. It was terrible. We'd have people. Some Sundays we'd have people from 10 states. Then we go, well, if we ever meet together, how's this work? And I don't know. And then, you know, the chaos and stores and things being, I'm going to go into Trader Joe's and everything just being empty. Remember that? There are times when I look back and all I remember is the chaos. But the Lord really spoke things in that season. For real. And living in the gap, even though we don't feel the full expression of it right now, living in that gap of hearing God and seeing fulfillment can wear a heart out. Some of you have heard from the Lord about things, and you heard it, and you're not there yet. And living in that gap can be exhausting. Zechariah 4.10, the New Living Translation says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Like the Lord looks down and sees a little start, and he is so pleased with that. He is delighted in what feels frustrating to us. The Lord, this morning, is delighted. He looks down, he's like, the chairs are going to be all messed up. Like, he doesn't bother him. He's not phased. He says, what are they going to do? They're going to move the chairs. He's delighted in those days of small beginnings. And if you read the Bible, you understand the Lord looks at growth as a long, slow climb instead of the rocket that we expect it to be. If you read the Bible, God's a farmer. Seeds die. They get put in the ground. Latter rains, former rains. It grows up. You harvest fruit. And he tells us to farm as well. Colossians 1.10 so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Have you ever tried to, in the literal, raise fruit in a hurry? Can't do it. You can even go out and encourage the tree. Has no bearing. It just takes time. Living things grow. That means they start small, but they get big. And despising those small times or resenting those small times is actually a sign to the Lord that we're not ready for the big time. It's like, if you don't like it little, wait till it gets big. You think it's hard now. Even Jesus, as a way of example to us, grew in stature with God and man. Can you imagine Joseph, his earthly father, looking at Jesus at 18 months and saying, you going to walk on water or what? You know, Jesus is like, I can barely walk on land. Was he God? Absolutely. But he was displaying the value of growth. He goes, I value growth so much, I'm going to go through it, even though I have no reason to grow. I'm going to show you how it's done. And in our presumption, we don't understand why the promises of God don't appear fully assembled tomorrow. Amazon can do it, right? Anything you want, press the button early enough in the day, it's there tomorrow. Let me explain to you. Amazon and God have wildly different values. They are trying to separate you from every dollar you have. 
That's not what he's trying to do. God's goal is to mature you, and instant delivery actually doesn't help. So as a church, we are in kind of the toddler phase, all right? You know the toddler when, like, one-third of their weight is in their head? You know, it's like, like that's kind of where we are as a church, a little awkward, a little, we got some boo-boos, got some band-aids on our forehead, and, and we're getting there, but it is still beautiful by, to the Lord. And you think about it as, a, we're not bothered by a toddler's antics. We're just not. That's what it means to be a toddler. Jenna was telling me, <laughs> their, their toddler ate five tubes of chapstick the other day. Toddler's going to toddle, you know? I mean, that happens. Now, if she's 14 and eating chapstick, might have to see a doctor. But right now, we're not worried. As a toddler, things happen, and you know that. We can't expect maturity in one fell swoop, but we want to talk about it, and we want to hold it out there, and we say, that's where we're going, even if we're not going to hate where we're at. We want what God wants for the bridge. And let me lay out what he wants for the bridge, ultimately. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, it's like, here's where we're going, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, my goal for the bridge, I'm going to make him like Jesus. And then he looks at the bridge and he goes, yeah, we can't rush this. Like, we're going to make them like Jesus, but this is going to be a journey. They're toddlers, but they're going to grow. In bridge history, which is, if you're, you're new, is actually very short. Some of you parents have chicken nuggets under the seats of your van that are older than the church. But in our history, there have been five values or principles that we have talked about from early on in our journey. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk about these five things, Okay. And we're going to revisit them for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of you were not here when we first started talking about them. Some of you, some of you are a little nervous now. They're going to roll out these five values I didn't know existed. They're, my guess is you're going to listen to them and go, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense because we've adhered very closely to them. So that's one of the reasons we're going to talk about it. The other reason we're going to talk about it is we as humans leak inspiration. Like we get inspired and then we deplete. We get it and we deplete. We've got to refill. When... When Nehemiah's building the walls, he rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in like 52 days. But he had to stop in the middle and cast vision again. You're like, 52 days and you had to take a break to refire up the troops? Because we just naturally kind of leak vision. The last reason I want to revisit all this is because I think despair.com is wrong. I think teamwork, we all do the work of one. But I actually think Together, we are all smarter than any one of us. And that together, as we explore these values, we're going to find vision and we're going to find ways to express these that as individuals we might not think of. Some of you in the coming weeks are going to hear something that's going to trigger you like, you know what we could do? And that's actually going to be the Lord speaking to you. And so we're eager as we talk about these principles to see how they walk out because some of you hold some of the keys to these. So if you're expecting step-by-step -step plans, adjust expectations, and just embrace these principles, 
and we're off to the races. What are the five? I'm going to go through the five really quickly. I'm going to circle back and talk about the first one, and then in coming weeks, we'll unpack the other four, okay? These are the five. The first one is a belief in the power of the gospel. This is the belief that Jesus can do what God sent him to do. He really can. This is the belief that we don't put him in a box, we don't put him in a, in a little window of history, but we actually believe everything that is said about him in the word. When we do that, be warned, we're going to be a bit of a fringe group. Christianity started as a fringe group. It really did. It didn't fit in with the culture. And increasingly, if we hold to the idea that Jesus is the God of the Bible, that is going to put us at odds with most of our culture. I don't know if you saw this, but earlier this week, a guy was approached by security in the Mall of America and asked to leave because of his offensive T-shirt. They told him, you don't have to leave. Your behavior is fine. Your shirt is offensive to people, and you need to leave. Or take the shirt off, and you can stay. I watched the video. You know what his shirt said? Front said, Jesus saves. The back said, Jesus is the only way. They wanted, I, I kept thinking there's more to this story. You know, maybe the guy was like being obnoxious or shoplifting. No. We would wear that shirt. Like, that's us. Those are our people. We believe that. We believe Jesus is who he said he was and is doing what he said he would do. That will increasingly put us on the margins of society. That's principle number one. Second one is the practice of sending, or the idea of sending uh, missionaries even from within our own body out. There's always a tension in new ministry ventures. Do we invest in ourselves or do we invest outward? If we invest outward, will there be enough for us? We are going to, if it's an error, we're going to err on the idea of sending. Next week, Daniel Grenz is going to share a little bit about this idea as we get ready to send he and Carla and their family to Washington, D.C., and then on to Taiwan. They'll be gone for 90 days. Also, Jackie and Josiah and Lima are going with them. Wave, guys, so everybody knows. So we're sending, between those three and Daniel and Carla and their kids, we're going to send 10 out. You might look around and go, do we have 10 to spare? In a world that says build, 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 Jesus says give away, give away, give away, send, give. If we wait, won't there be a f 10 fewer here? Yes, but sending doesn't mean a smaller group. Sending means a bigger footprint, which means we get to have influence in Washington, D.C. and in Taiwan while they're gone. So sending is one of those principles. A third principle would be the exercise of vibrant community. I use that word very intentionally, exercise. Why? Because exercise is the easiest thing in the world not to do. I have a very expensive laundry rack. It's actually an exercise bike. But I find us hanging laundry on it because it's easier to hang laundry on it than to do the stuff. Community is like that bike. You got to get on it. You got to ride it. And it takes effort. Everybody wants to find community. You can't find community. You build community. So we're going to talk about that exercise of vibrant community. Number four, the idea of an eye to the future. Most of the world, most of your friends, even many who are believers, are driving 100 miles an hour looking out the side window, looking at the, the exact spot they are in. What do you teach your kids when it's time to drive? Look as far down the road as you can. 
Look as far down the road as you can. And as a church, we want to lead our lives with an eye to the future, what God is doing and what he says he'll do in his word. We want to have a working understanding of the end of the age that's to come. Many of us grew up with no clue about that. Pastors didn't want to talk about it. I remember a, a pastor that I was working with at one time said, um, there are so many competing theories about the end of the age that we don't concern ourselves where, where this is going. Well, then I'm not following. You know, I'm not going to follow somebody who's not concerned about where we're going. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room when it comes to eschatology at the end of the age. I just don't want to be the surprised guy in the room. And I don't want to lead people who are surprised when it gets here. Fifth thing is going to be the idea of a rhythm of prayer. It would be hard-pressed to find anybody who doesn't believe in prayer during a crisis. And even if they say they don't, check back in a crisis. All right? A couple of weeks ago, NFL football player goes down, the entire nation kicks into prayer mode. They really did. Nobody consulted the courts. One of the favorite things I saw was, um, I want to get his name right, Dan Orvalski on ESPN the next day. He said, I don't know if this is the right thing to do or not, but it's on my heart to pray for him. And his co-anchor said, it is. So right there on national television, and, and I actually went back and found the words because you could tell he was like, I'm about to get kicked off. I'm going to do it anyway. He says, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to bow my head and I'm going to pray for him. Nobody stopped him. And they prayed for this young man. Whole nation, crisis prayer is not hard to generate enthusiasm for. However, I think a rhythm of prayer, praying day in, day out, together for the purposes of God on the earth, so that prayer becomes more like breathing and less like a defibrillator. That's what's on my heart for this church. No one would think about life apart from the rhythm of breathing. You've done it since you got in here. Most of you haven't thought about it. Now you're going to think about it. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. You know, you just do it naturally. That's the rhythm of prayer I want to get to. And we do little prayer meetings here and there, but I'm believing for a place that we can meet and that over, over time we can, in a, in a rhythm, build an opportunity. Not we don't have to go 24-7. Other people are doing that. They're doing it great. There's no need to recreate the wheel. But I want people that we pray with like we breathe with. So circling back to the power of the gospel. Because that's the one I want to focus on in our last couple of minutes here together. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul spoke about how offensive that idea was that Jesus really could seek and save the lost and change their lives. A few weeks, or a few weeks ago, combining stories here, a few Years ago, I was with another senior minister. And I mean, senior minister, meaning the organization we were in, they were, uh, would definitely have outranked me, if, if that is a thing. And I was surprised to find out that in that world, this idea that Jesus could set people free was actually controversial. As I talked to this leader, they were more interested in writing someone a pass about a besetting sin in their lives than they were in helping that person get free from that sin. And it was like a two-alarm fire. They were alarmed at my suggestion that people should expect that Jesus would set them free. I was alarmed at their resignation and willingness to let somebody languish in sin. 
And then remember, they said, you're going to push people away from the church if you don't accept them as they are. I said, you're going to push people away from Jesus if you don't tell them that Jesus can give them freedom. Who wants or needs a Jesus whose primary message to us is as you were? I don't want to stay as I were. I don't want you to stay as you were. I don't want people coming into the bridge to think, I'm bringing in about six suitcases of baggage and i got to carry it for the rest of my life. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, in that context, he is talking about Jewish tradition and the Pharisees, the hypocritical structure that let them lord it over. He's like, don't pick up that yoke anymore. But inviting people to Jesus without offering them freedom from sin is just as religious as the Pharisees were in the New Testament. It's the flip side of the same coin. Here, have some religion. Okay, what's it good for? Well, nothing, really. You, you gather in a strange little dance studio. You sing some songs. You listen to a strange little bald band. But you go home pretty much the same. Part of the reason Jesus says that his yoke is easy is when you pick up his, you get to lay down yours. He takes on your baggage. Why you would want to follow Jesus and keep your baggage, I do not understand. Why would even anybody want other people to carry their baggage after they met Jesus? We meet people every day who are burdened beyond compare. And if the picture of Jesus that we offer them is a little church, a little companionship, but a continued struggle with their sin, no wonder they're not interested. I preached this one time, and someone who had struggled specifically with pornography for years came to me, and I said, I'll, it's a simple, Jesus can set you free. Does it mean you have to put any effort forth? Yes, you have to put effort forth. You've got to participate in what he's doing, but you can find freedom. He came to me, he said, I've been in the church 20 years. Nobody ever told me I could be free. All they ever did was tell me how to cope with it. Coping skills are important. They're real. But Jesus didn't come so that you could cope. He came so that you could be free. This caused me to think long and hard about the Jesus that I wanted to preach and present to people. And I decided I really wanted to believe in this Jesus of hope that would allow people freedom rather than just coping skills. Jesus did not die for your temporary relief. Actually, they make Valium for that. Okay? Valium makes everything go away for a little while. Don't raise your hand. But if you've ever had Valium... It's pretty good. Had a dentist one time when I was a kid. I mean, late teenager. I had terrible anxiety. The dentist, they gave me Valium. I said, take this before you come. When I got there, they said, where's your driver? I said, I drove here. They said, don't tell anybody that. Get a drive. Like, you know, it's just, it's short term, but it goes away. Like, you're not like that forever. Jesus didn't die for your temporary relief. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's not just temporary relief. There's actual freedom. And that idea that Jesus wants you to be free and paid the price so that you could be free turns out to be way more controversial than I thought it was going to be. For a couple of different reasons. There's a passive and an active reason why people push back on the idea that Jesus could give you freedom. This is the passive idea. I call it the cult of church structure 
or the idea that if we get our church structure right, it'll be so powerful that no demon in hell will be able to press back against our structure. And there are people with that kind of faith in the way that they do church, not in Jesus, but in methods. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, that's all true, but it's not because we got the structure right or we got the methods right. It's because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're set free from the patterns of life that will conquer us. Church structure is just a channel that he flows in. Don't put your faith in the structure. Put your faith in what his spirit does through it. The church as people, the bride, is powerful. But the church as structure, what most people think of when they think of the church and what has become the center point of Christianity in America when they ponder the idea of what it means to follow Jesus the structure is just a frame. What he's doing in the structure is what sets people free. And when the structure doesn't proclaim freedom, people don't have the faith for it on their own. So when we make the church structure the point, it often chokes out the power of what God wants because church structural engineers begin to think that they can also engineer the kingdom. The hearts of people who hunger for God are not supported by the structures they build, but by the spirit that draws us. And I'm not against structure. I'm just saying there's nine different ways to do church, and at the end of the day, if the spirit doesn't move in them, good luck. The hearts of people who hunger for God are not supported by the structures they build, but by the spirit that draws them. The lost are not looking for our, to us to get our church government right. They're looking for us to represent a Jesus that proclaims freedom. That's the life that God promises people. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is a passive resistance to the idea that Jesus changes lives because people think the church structure has it all figured out, and I'm telling you, it doesn't. Whatever structure we build will be woefully inadequate to change lives. But the Jesus that we serve can do it. So that's the passive reason why the church itself leans back from this idea that Jesus can change lives. There's also an active reason, though. And the active reason rests on our shoulders because we doubt that he can do it. The passive reason for failing to believe in breakthrough for people's lives is that we're more content to conquer on our own. But the active reason is less benevolent. It's that we really don't believe it, maybe because we've never encountered it. I have a begrudgingly weird admiration for atheists because it's got to be hard. I disagree with them. But I'll give them this. They're bold about something that if they're wrong about, the stakes are high. Truth is, you don't find that many true atheists because it's a really cold, hard life. It's like, what do you do on Thanksgiving? Like, you know, it's like you look around and you're like, hmm. It's a hard way to live. However, what you do find outside the church and inside the church is a large number of functioning agnostics. I say functioning because they may not use that word, but it's how they function. They don't really know what they believe, 
And in their doubt, they might embrace the language of Jesus without embracing the power of Jesus. It's kind of a sentimental faith. We hope it's true, but it's not an experiential faith. And that functional agnosticism has infected even the church where you can find a place to feel good without believing or really expecting that your life will change. 2 Timothy chapter 3 refers to people having the appearance of godliness but denying the power. We've always interpreted that as denying the, the gifts of the Spirit. You know, grew up Pentecostal, so we thought everybody was against us all times. And that idea of that they are, they're denying, oh, they're denying tongues, they're denying prophecy. They're not, no, that actually, I mean, they're denying the power of God in their own lives. Like, I, I believe in looking right and doing right. I just don't think that he can actually change anything in me. The Jesus of the Bible is a God you can experience in power, and that God you can expect can change you, and it can make things different. There is a power you could never muster up with the best self-help program in the world. What made Jesus so powerful? Like, how did he, you know, how did he get to be Jesus? How, what did he do that kind of unlocked that key? The power of Jesus lies in the fact that he did what he was sent to do. He was obedient to his Father in all things. Nobody walked the face of the earth with a clearer purpose or commitment that accomplished that purpose. He wandered through the crowds. His eyes met people. He's looking around. And everywhere he went, he looked and he thought, I've got to get these people out of a cage they found themselves in. And I can only do it if I'm obedient to the Father. To do this, he had to embrace the will of God. John 5, 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. He can only do what he sees the father doing. So Jesus looked at what he saw God's heart to do, and he said, I'm just going to do what my father wanted me to do. He wasn't just a consent, content to say yes to God. He had to go a step further and express the activity of the Father on the earth. Jesus came to earth to show us what the Father was like and create a path to him that we would have never found on our own. Even though it had been spoken of for centuries. You look through the Old Testament, there are these nuggets. We talk about it once in a while. We'll read the New Testament. We'll find these Old Testament prophetic nuggets. Even though they're all there, anybody who lived through it says, I don't see it. Jesus said, I have to show them. If you're an artist, you understand how difficult it is to be creative and do something that nobody has ever done before. Nobody really does it. I saw Recently, Garth Brooks released his two-hour Las Vegas residency show that he's done for a while. Just him and a guitar. Incredibly creative musician. It's a two-hour show of him playing other songs that aren't his and explaining where he stole that idea. Plays an old song, goes, yeah, you know, play, you know this one of mine? I got it there. It's like one of the most creative people in the world going, I stole it all. I stole it all. Jesus didn't steal anything. He said, I'm going to show you what the Father did, and there's only one way to do it. It's the most creative thing you've ever imagined. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's like, if I'm going to set him free, I've got to walk with him. We haven't done this yet. We've spoken to him, but I've got to walk with him. They had heard the word of the Lord for hundreds of years, but he said, no, no, to set them free, I've got to be there in flesh and blood. They've got to see me sweat. They've got to see blood on my hands. They've got to see wounds, and they've got to see me die and raise again. If I do that, they'll understand the power that God has had from the beginning. 
want to ask if the worship team would come back on up. Jesus came to earth to show earthlings what it was like. And he said, I know you've seen clouds and pillars of fire and floods and storms and intervention, but you haven't seen me in the flesh. So I'm going to take my word, I'm going to put it in a package that you can relate to, and I'm going to put it there. And the eyes of every spiritually hungry person on the earth laser focused on Jesus, wondering what would the word do if it walked among us. Luke 19.10 says, for the Son of Man, this is what he came to do, to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to console the lost, although that's important. He didn't come to excuse the lost. They'll do that themselves. He came to set them free and to change their life. And as a piece of vision, as a principle, Bridge family, we are going to proclaim the Jesus that changes lives. We are going to say to our friends, to our coworkers, to anybody who will listen, no, no, no. When Jesus came, he was God in the flesh, and suddenly everything was possible. The addiction you're struggling with can be broken. The besetting sin that you've lived with for 20 years, you can be set free. That excuse that you have made for your behavior, he can break that off. Some of you have had these encounters. Some of you lived under a dark cloud for years, and in a moment he changed everything. For others of you, it was a gradual thing, but it happened. And we're not going to back off on telling that story of Jesus. Even though it will grow increasingly fringe to the rest of the world. very big proclaiming this we may get smaller but we're going to hold to the Jesus of the Bible who changes lives and has expectations of us and then we return and we, we give him what he asks and he changes everything stand with me if you would this is what you can expect okay at the bridge, you can expect that we will have an expectation that if you're following Jesus, you want freedom. That you're looking for it. You can expect that you'll be around people who believe that you can be free. You can expect that we'll have teaching that points to the whole Jesus. And you can expect there will be others that will walk with you as you pursue freedom. Whether the Lord does it in a moment or over time you conquer this area of sin. But you can expect that you will not be expected to live under that cloud for the rest of your life. That is not God's plan for you. So Jesus, we come to you and we declare that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not just freedom to dance, although we love that. Not just freedom to sing, but freedom to walk apart from the baggage that we've picked up along the way. Let's worship. Jesus, you change everything. Chance, fall, fear, bow. Now
that are crying out for change, that you would break in in power. You would do the work that we read of in the Bible, that we've seen you do among our friends. We speak freedom, Jesus. Freedom from besetting sins. Freedom from patterns that we're stuck in. Freedom from wrong thinking that just goes on and on and on. We love you, Jesus. Just want to pray one more time for Lynn's mom. Got a, a note that she's uh, checked into a room. She's stabilized. That's good. So let's just press into that for a minute again. Father, we ask you would touch her. You would change things. And that sweet lady, bring healing, Jesus. Healing, we ask. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, see myself, Daniel, one of our leaders, ran over a little bit. If you've got kids, grab them. And if you grab your things on your way out, God bless you. We'll see you next week.